This is a Modern Man Podcast. I'm your host, J.D. Farrell, and I'm so excited. On this episode, we're joined by my uncle, Dr. Peter Brent Stambro. He's one of the leading physicians treating PANS, PANDAS patients in child and adolescent psychiatry in the state of Oklahoma. And I'm so excited for you to hear about his story from the start of pandemic until now, how they didn't have any shutdown and was still able to treat over 10,000 patients and still employ 20 people. Good friend, my uncle, Dr. Peter Sambra. How are you doing today? <laughs> good. Good. Good? Yeah. Awesome. So I want to start by giving the audience a little bit about your background and kind of your specialty and what brought you to where you are today. Okay. So, um... I studied psychiatry, well, I went to med school in uh, New York State, and then um, psychiatry at Boston University, and then I did a subspecialty in child adolescent psychiatry at University of Massachusetts in Worcester, and then was uh, I stayed living in Massachusetts uh, for about 10 years and was practicing up there, and due to a, um, a family health issue, um, I moved to Oklahoma to take care of uh, a parent. So uh, I moved home, I was on a teaching faculty at uh, University of Oklahoma School of Medicine for a few years and then uh, opened a private practice and I still teach at at the med school. I have uh, medical students who rotate through here uh, in their psychiatry rotation and um, it's a busy practice we now have eight providers and about 20 employees so it's really busy and my passion is helping kids and we've seen an uptick in uh, a lot of issues with kids and parents and um, everybody during COVID it's been remarkable uh, to see what we've seen Okay. And so I want you to rewind back to about March 2020 when COVID first struck back. And you went through, you have about 20 total employees, mm-hmm. about 12 uh, administrative employees and 80 providers. Mm-hmm. And about how many patients do you think the mm-hmm. practice sees as well? Uh, on our roster, we have uh, probably, well, we have over 10,000 total um, active I would say near that Uh, some are considered somewhat inactive and they sort of come in and out so they'll might need to kind of kind of bounce back if uh, issues come up so they're not seen on a monthly basis or even an annual basis but we tend to see people who might you know, need to come back and see us after a few years, so we'll see that. Okay, so that would leave about 10,000 patients without medical care and 20 employees without jobs if you weren't able, your practice wasn't able to run during the pandemic. Correct. And what steps did you and the practice manager, um, what steps did y'all take to continue to -hmm. see patients when? Let Let me just back up and make one clarification. In March of 2020, yeah. that was the count. Okay, uh, we've grown. Okay, since then, so I would say probably now we are maybe more towards uh, 15,000 total wow. patients we've added. Providers, uh, we uh, have added two providers 
during the pandemic just to keep up with the, the volume. Wow. So, um, but uh, what steps did we take? Well, um, and in the beginning it was, uh, I, we had no idea what we were doing. We didn't know. We had, uh, I had colleagues like pediatricians and other specialties who, uh, you know, out of fear, out of, you know, risk, out of, you know, not knowing what to do, uh, and advice from uh, others, uh, medical community to close, close their doors uh, for a period of time. Uh, at the time, we were not doing any telemedicine, and because insurances, some of the bigger insurance uh, companies were not paying for telemedicine, and you know that's the reason why we had not offered that even pre-COVID, and so we uh, very quickly kind of figured out we needed to protect uh, ourselves. We needed to protect the population uh, coming in and because we would we would have I don't know at any given hour of a day we might have 30 families coming in and out of here with uh, you know a couple of couple of generations of, of people caretakers uh, a lot of grandparents take care of their grandchildren these days blended families so a lot of uh, people who might be at high risk uh, because of COVID. So we had to move quickly. We closed our doors. We secured um, the insurance companies that would pay for uh, telemedicine and we petitioned those that were initially saying no. Uh, we reached out uh, to them, to the state. We tried to get some guidance from the Oklahoma Board of Medicine and the Insurance Commission uh, and you know, we're just on it as far as like uh, trying to get what we could for, you know, to to be able to see continue seeing patients and to be paid for it. So uh, we did what we could as quickly as possible. Uh, it, I would say for as little as we knew to start, uh, it was a rather smooth transition. Uh, we didn't do any telemedicine one day, and the next day we were doing 100% telemedicine and we made it work. We made it work. And what do you think are some of the advantages of telemedicine versus seeing patients constantly, at least to keep, uh, keep it going in the future? Yeah. Oh, the fact that it is it, uh, it allows more people uh, from farther distances to access healthcare. It has absolutely been a game changer, and I think that I absolutely think it ought to continue. Uh, for people who do not have the means to get here uh, to a physical location, uh, we have people driving from uh, far distances, hours uh, away in the state to, to drive here. If they don't have the means to get here, they did not get health care. Or they did not get child and adolescent or even adult uh, psychiatry care if they didn't have any in their community. There are not that many certainly not pediatric psychiatrists or adult psychiatrists for that matter, because we see all ages um, in their community. And so if you only have, you know, just a handful of providers in the specialty, uh, they, people would have to drive quite a distance to get here. We actually have people coming from eight states wow. to get 
the care that we provide pre-COVID. So uh, that we can see these people and they can do this from the convenience of their home, it opens up so many more venues for people to, to be seen and uh, so many more people can access care. It's absolutely, I think it ought to continue it would, I think it would be criminal not to, to allow that to continue. If it doesn't, I think that we ought to be writing at all levels of government and insurance companies ought to be mandated to allow this to continue. <laughs> Absolutely. And obviously you've been very receptive to it, but what's the feedback you receive from patients and maybe other providers about telemedicine? Has it been the same or any negative feedback from it? Um, I would say I could I could count on two hands um, my personal experience the number of patients who feel like they have some uh, existing patients of mine who feel like they want to they would rather see uh, me in person and I, you know I get that I, I understand that uh, although I do think that when it's working well, uh, that this is just as personable. Uh, because I know the patient, I've known a patient for a while, uh, I think it's just as easy to communicate with them as it would be if they were sitting here. It does make it a little bit more challenging if uh, it's a new patient, because there are things like body language, sometimes just the inflection in somebody's voice, the quality of the video on one end or the other might um, compromise a little bit of some of the most subtle things that you could pick up on somebody's in a conversation or body language or something like that. If you're seeing only this much of somebody's uh, body, you don't know if they're wringing their hands, tapping their feet, fidgeting, you know, there's uh, just a whole lot you can get uh, from observation that you might not get on screen. So. There's some compromises, but at the same time, it is, uh, otherwise you might not even be able to see this individual. They might not even access healthcare. So for that, I think it's worth the compromise. Okay. And so what do you think are gonna be some of the barriers from telehealth, telemedicine continuing uh, forward? There are indications that insurance companies are already looking to um, discontinue. So whenever the, uh, towards the end of the year as we were getting into November and December and people were looking to you know have to renew their insurance with their um, with their employers um, and we would we would be talking about it because we were doing this here as well because I offer you know coverage for my employees and we were talking about okay you know for your uh, health care provider for you know the pe the people that I, I employ here when they're looking to make sure that their doctors, their primary care doctors and their other healthcare professionals, are they offering telemedicine? Is the policy that we're offering my employees, is it going to cover telemedicine in the future? Is there a package that they can pick of what is available? Will that include that? And can we ensure that that is going to continue before you know those choices are made by my employees, and I was I was putting that out there when I would have conversations with the patients, um, 
uh, as you're picking your healthcare policies for next year, ask your HR person, ask your employer, is it going to include telemedicine? If you want this, if you like this, if you want this to continue, as I'm talking to them on screen, yeah. you know, ask, insist, demand, whatever it is, that, you know, whatever uh, verb you want uh, to make sure that that continues because there's already indications that it's they're looking for ways to, as quickly as possible, discontinue it. And why do you think that is? Well, um, I got a flyer in the mail from my own insurer that was like, you know, uh, very shortly we're going to be making changes to, you know, pre-COVID uh, state of, you know, business as usual, be looking for these, and telemedicine was as one of those little bullet points that was in this. It was just a little simple flyer that they had printed out and mailed to me. And I'm, I'm looking at it going, yep, that's absolutely what they're looking to do. Because it costs them more money if they have to pay for more people uh, with their insurance. Because those people are now able to get care from the privacy of their home. Mm -hmm. They're going to... They're looking for ways to discontinue that as quickly as possible. No doubt in my mind. Just another barrier for more people to get more adequate health care. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It's cheaper mm -hmm. than fewer people see yes. a doc. Wow. So, going forward, are you afraid of opening your doors to the hundreds of patients on a daily basis that are going to eventually be coming back into this office? No, I think when the time is right, um, if it's not rushed, um, I've already gotten my first vaccine. I need my second one. I trust the science. I understand vaccines. I don't fear that. I want the. I want all of my employees to get vaccinated. Uh, but it's you know everyone has the choice. Uh, I hope that um, most people will not be afraid of the vaccine in the general public. They will get it, and I want them to get it. I encourage. You know, we at some point we'll have that herd immunity when it's like 70 plus percent of the population gets vaccinated. Uh, so when we're at that point, I don't fear it uh, because I, I trust in the vaccine and how it's going to work. Okay. Are there any other fears in the future of your specialty or in the field of medicine you're afraid of? Any fears in the future? Maybe it changes that to the infrastructure of. Um, well, yeah, um, I don't know if this is, um, you know, the appropriate forum or not, but there are, there, because it is such a, there's such a shortage of providers in this field, they are, there's talk of having expanding uh, providers to include what are considered mid-levels, which are physician assistants and nurse practitioners, which currently require a supervising physician to oversee their work. Okay. Um, it's because a doctor to get in this position of being able to do this work takes um, ten plus years to just do this, yeah. um, and that's not in count. And that's not counting any other extra work. I did some extra stuff. Yeah. So at least 
10, uh, where to do a nurse practitioner to be a prescriber, two years. A physician assistant, two years. Uh, start to finish. And so that's the reason they are, they work under the supervision of a doctor. Now there's talk of having those people be completely independent. That is astonishing. That's my fear. Yeah. Uh, it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're qualified. I employ physician assistants here, and I have in the past employed nurse practitioners. Uh, and I think they're good at what they do when I'm supervising their work and I can oversee it and I can discuss and I can say these are the things that I need you to do and I'm, I can see it and I can uh, co-sign a note and I'm guiding them and this is the medicine I need them to take this is the stuff I want you to do and here's the way I want you to do it that's the way it's supposed to work but for them to be solely independent and nobody else is doing uh, overseeing the work and it's uh, with a two year base education uh, scares me. And are the same people who are allowing these people to go and practice on their own, the same people not allowing telemedicine to become more frequent? Because I don't know, why would they be letting those changes happen, but then they aren't letting more people access medical? Well, um, or the, these two different bodies? Uh, there, there are several different bodies. There's a a national organized nurse practitioner governing oversight mm -hmm. body uh, that represents them. They have a strong lobby, okay, uh, a strong voice, and they're pushing for that. Okay. Uh, there's a, a a national body and a state, a national body that promotes and uh, lobbies for physician assistants. Um, they're pushing as well, not as hard, not yet. Yeah. Uh, but nurse practitioners have been pushing for independence for years, and several states have they have granted that in those states, uh, not here where we live in Oklahoma. Uh, quite frankly, insurance companies, you think about it, um, they can pay a physician assistant and a nurse practitioner less money. So sure, they're for it. Okay. And I feel like in all this, it's really minimalizing the credentials of what a physician is. That eh. if um, if somebody could go to school for two years and come out with little or no debt, versus go to school for ten or twelve years and come out with well into six-figure debt, um, and do the very same thing. Yeah. Why even have med schools? The cost benefit, yeah. Why even have med schools? What's the point? Mm -hmm. oh, it's dangerous. It really is. So. Okay. Uh, I guess we'll close it on this. Anyone we know, the pandemic took a toll on a lot of us. And a lot of people are trying to reach out there for some mental health. But those who are a little afraid and maybe afraid of being prescribed something or do you, any advice to that person who wants to reach out or maybe a little afraid of what someone may think of them or well i i mean the i i think over really over the course of the last mm, probably 10 maybe 15 years uh, there's been a decrease in the stigma of 
is you know seeking out help for mental health issues. I think I think it started with uh, post-war soldiers seeking help uh, with the VA system and things like that. Um, you know, it's a public dialogue when the VA was overwhelmed with the VA system was overwhelmed and they couldn't uh, manage all of the the soldiers and needing some mental health help. Um, and I think that was it became a national dialogue, and I think it it was uh, it was less it became less stigmatizing to at least address it. I think over time people are just more aware of things like PTSD or anxiety and depression. It's just it's much more common than people realize. Um, and talking to someone, it's it's across the world actually, but it's certainly across the nation. Uh, people are suffering all ages. Uh, there's so much fatigue and there's just so many things that are uh, stressing people out. We In 2020, from pandemic to uh, race riots and to political unrest and uh, you know, now there's you know, fears of uh, can we get a vaccine appointment? Can we get are we going to get a second one? Can we? Are we going to run out? Are we? Now we've got some super strains, and uh, <laughs> I mean, it's goes on and on and on. Are we going to lose our job? Are we going to get kicked out of our apartments? We don't, you know. Are we going to get our, you know, our, our, our you know, support checks? Are we going to, you know, unemployment's going to run out? Uh, you know. So if there's uh, if there's anything I would say it would be you're not alone. You. Um, it is not stigmatizing to simply ask for help. It is private. It is uh, secured. And just because you reach out for some help does not mean that you are going to be um, mandated a prescription or loaded up with a whole bunch of you know, bottles of pills that will um, dumb you down or make you feel like a zombie. Uh, and some things are uh, temporary to sort of ease past crises. Um, sometimes just um, asking for some help uh, in and of itself is therapeutic. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Sampra.